The book of Genesis. It's the first book of the Bible, and its storyline divides into two main parts. There's chapters 1 through 11, which tell the story of God and the whole world. And then there's chapters 12 through 50, which zoom in and tell the story of God and just one man, Abraham, and then his family. And these two parts are connected by a hinge story at the beginning of chapter 12. And this design, it gives us a clue to how to understand the message of the book as a whole and how it introduces the story of the whole Bible. So the book begins with God taking the disorder and the darkness described in the second sentence of the Bible, and God brings out of it order and beauty and goodness. He makes a world where life can flourish. And God makes these creatures called humans, or Adam in Hebrew. He makes them in his image, which has to do with their role and purpose in God's world. So the humans are made to be reflections of God's character out into the world. And they're appointed as God's representatives to rule his world on his behalf, which in context means to harness all of its potential, to care for it, and make it a place where even more life can flourish. God blesses the humans. It's a key word in this book. And he gives them a garden. It's like a place from which they begin starting to build this new world. Now, the key is that the humans have a choice about how they're going to go about building this world. And that's represented by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Up till now, God has provided and defined what is good and what is not good. But now God is giving the humans the dignity and the freedom of a choice. Are they going to trust God's definition of good and evil, or are they going to seize autonomy and define good and evil for themselves? And the stakes are really high. To rebel against God is to embrace death because you're turning away from the giver of life himself. This is represented by the tree of life. And so in chapter 3, a mysterious figure, a snake, enters into the story. The snake's given no introduction other than it's a creature that God made. And it becomes clear that it's a creature in rebellion against God, and it wants to lead the humans into rebellion and their death. The snake tells a different story about the tree and the choice. It says that seizing the knowledge of good and evil are not going to bring death, that it's actually the way to life and becoming like God themselves. Now, the irony of this is tragic because we know the humans, they're already like God. They were made to reflect God's image. But instead of trusting God, the humans seize autonomy. They take the knowledge of good and evil for themselves. And in an instant, the whole story spirals out of control. The first casualty is human relationships. The man and the woman, they suddenly realize how vulnerable they are now. They can't even trust each other. And so they make clothes and they hide their bodies from one another. The second casualty is that intimacy between God and the humans is lost. So they go and run and hide from God. And then when God finds them, they start this game of blame shifting about who rebelled first. Now, right here, the story stops. And there's a series of short poems where God declares to the snake and then to the humans the tragic consequences of their actions. God first tells the snake that despite its apparent victory, it is destined for defeat to eat dust. God promises that one day a seed or a descendant will come from the woman who's going to deliver a lethal strike to the snake's head, which sounds like great news, but this victory is going to come with a cost because the snake too will deliver a lethal strike to the descendant's heel as it's being crushed. It's a very mysterious promise of this wounded victor. But in the flow of the story so far, you see this is an act of God's grace. The humans, they've just rebelled. And what does God do? He promises to rescue them. 
But this doesn't erase the consequences of the human's decision. So God informs them that now every aspect of their life together at home and out in the field, it's going to be fraught with grief and pain because of the rebellion, all leading to their death. From here, the story then spirals downward. Chapters 3 through 11, they trace the widening ripple effect of the rebellion and of human relationships fracturing at every level. So there's a story about two brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain's so jealous of his brother that he wants to murder him. And God warns him not to give in to the temptation, but he does anyway. He murders him in the field. So Cain then goes on to build a city where violence and oppression reign. And this is all epitomized in the story of Lamech. He's the first man in the Bible to have more than one wife. He's accumulating them like property. And then he goes on to sing a short song about how he's more violent and vengeful than Cain ever was. After this, we get an odd story about the sons of God, which could refer to evil angelic beings, or it could refer to ancient kings who claimed that they descended from the gods. And like Lamech, they acquire as many wives as they wanted, and they produce the Nephilim, these great warriors of old. Whichever view is right, the point is that humans are building kingdoms that fill God's world with violence and even more corruption. In response, we're told that God is broken with grief. Humanity is ruining his good world, and they're ruining each other. And so out of a passion to protect the goodness of his world, he washes it clean of humanity's evil with a great flood. But he protects one blameless human, Noah, and his family, and he commissions him as a new Adam. He repeats the divine blessing and commissions him to go out into the world. And so our hopes are really high, but then Noah fails too, and also in a garden. He goes and he plants a vineyard, and he gets drunk out of his mind. And then one of his sons, Ham, does something shameful to his father in the tent. And so here we have our new Adam, naked and ashamed just like the first, and the downward spiral begins again. It all leads to the foundation of the city of Babylon. The people of ancient Mesopotamia, they come together around this new technology they have, the brick. And they can make cities and towers bigger and faster than anybody's ever done before. And they want to build a new kind of tower that will reach up to the gods, and they will make a great name for themselves. It's an image of human rebellion and arrogance. It's the garden rebellion now writ large. And so God humbles their pride and scatters them. Now, this is a diverse group of stories, but you can see they're all exploring the same basic point. God keeps giving humans the chance to do the right thing with his world, and humans keep ruining it. These stories are making a claim that we live in a good world that we have turned bad, that we've all chosen to define good and evil for ourselves, and so we all contribute to this world of broken relationships, leading to conflict and violence and ultimately death. But there's hope. God promised that one day a descendant would come, the wounded victor who will defeat evil at its source. And so despite humanity's evil, God is determined to bless and rescue his world. And so the big question, of course, is what is God going to do? And the next story, The Hinge, offers the answer. But for now, that's what Genesis 1 through 11 is all about. 
So that's the context for what we're going to get into today. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, uh, we are in Genesis 15. In fact, I want to encourage you to even bring your chronological Bible. I'm planning on preaching out of this this year. And so if you've got your chronological Bible, we are on page 17. I've always wanted to do that, is give the page number for the scripture text. Uh, Genesis 15, beginning with verse 1. And uh, as you're turning there, I kind of wanted to do a little bit of check-in with you all. How is your Bible reading going? You guys staying caught up? Okay, a few heads nodding, a few people looking at the floor. That's okay. Um, no shame, uh, no guilt, no shame. Uh, but just want to remind you, if you're caught up uh, by the end of today, uh, you should be somewhere, I think, around Genesis 24, finishing that up. Um, and there's a lot in there. There's so much content, uh, even just in these first 24 chapters. Uh, and so I just want to encourage you to keep at it. Uh, some of you I know uh, are listening to it. It's uh, 12 minutes and 14 seconds a day. Uh, I've been doing a little bit of that. I've been doing a little bit of reading. I've been doing a little bit of listening. Sometimes I have my Bible in front of me. Um, and what I really like about that is I have my Bible in front of me and then I listen to it and then somebody else pronounces the names for me. Uh, and I'm like, oh man, that's, that's really, really helpful. So, well, we are calling this sermon series, uh, The Holy Bible from 35,000 Feet. It's, a, it's an overview. Uh, we're high up off the ground and of course we're using this metaphor of a commercial airliner and most of us have flown in a commercial airline, commercial uh, planes fly between 30 and 40,000 feet. And I just thought, well, let's just put it right in the middle at 35,000 feet. And so as you're looking out the window uh, down at the earth and it's not cloudy out, maybe you're seeing different things and you're trying to guess, you know, is what town is that or what city is that or, or what's going on. And I, I think it's really interesting how each person uh, sitting on the plane has got a different view, a different seat, of course, and uh, maybe you're looking over the wing, and so you're kind of craning your neck, kind of stretching, or um, uh, maybe some of you just, you know, pull the shade because you don't want to look out. I don't know. But uh, the point is we all have a different perspective uh, as we look down on the earth because um, that's our particular place on the plane. But I think the metaphor continues. I want to keep on with this a little bit. All of us are going to approach scripture um, because we have a different background. We have different life experiences. Some of us, well, we all have different uh, amounts of knowledge as we've read Scripture. And uh, even though uh, we read it in, in different ways and see different things, like different people are seeing different things on the ground, it's still God's story and it's still speaks to us. Uh, and I think that's the beauty of it. And, and it's been really fun for me to hear. Some of you have already shared with me some of your God sightings uh, in Scripture and said, hey, I saw this in Scripture. And even this morning, some of you uh, who have been reading the Bible for years, for decades, uh, shared with me about some of your God sightings and the ways in which you see God moving. And you were reminded again of what God is up to and continues to be up to in the world. And I just want to encourage you to continue to just have that openness to see God moving in the world and in your own life. And so if you're at Genesis uh, 15, uh, beginning with verse 1, I'm going to invite us uh, to bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you are indeed a God uh, who speaks to us, 
who spoke to people in ages past and you continue to speak to us today through your word. And so, Lord, as we continue on considering how our story intersects with your story, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, the book of Genesis is a story of origins. It's a story of origins of the universe. It's a story of uh, origins of humanity. It's a story of origins of marriage and relationships and God's plan for human relationships. And of course, it's also uh, the story of origins of sin and brokenness into the world. And as I said in the video, it's also a story of God's plan for redemption. So even though man, humankind, chose to be disobedient, God says, ah, I've got a plan. There is hope. We, the, the video recaptured this, Genesis 3.15, again, this whole idea of the proto-evangelion, this idea of the, the first good news, and we're going to come back to this over and over and over and over. And this is why it's so important for us to not only familiarize ourselves with the, the creation story, the story of origins, but to keep coming back to it because it's going to ground us, it, it roots us, and it, and it reminds us that it all ties back to the, be the beginning, to Genesis. Genesis 1 and the origins. And so we're going to come to uh, Genesis 12, and that's where the video uh, stopped today, where God comes to a pagan man uh, in, in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans, which we know of today as Iraq. And God comes to this man. Uh, what we learn is Abram isn't looking for God. He's not seeking God, which again is our story, right? It is that God comes to us even when we are not seeking him. And it doesn't say anything about Adam, uh, uh, Abram being a righteous man or a good man or a moral man. In fact, he is a, a worshiper of other gods. And God comes to him. The call of Abram is this, hey, I want to be in relationship with you. You are going to be part of my salvation plan. And I'm going to build a great nation from you and your wife, Sarai. And this nation is, I'm going to bless you. And you are going to be a blessing to the nation. And I'm going to give you this land. And so thus begins the patriarchal era uh, of the uh, Genesis story, the beginning uh, of, of all that is going on. And the patriarchal era is from about 2165 BC to 1804 BC. Did you notice that in your Bibles, uh, you're given some dates? Yes, no, some of, okay, um, all right. So it, it's in there, uh, some dates oftentimes. And so I think that's kind of helpful. And again, this is why we're doing chronological because uh, it helps us to kind of look at the timeline and really understand. And so we're about 2000-ish uh, BC. And part of this promise that God, uh, as he's communicating uh, to Abram, is this idea uh, of that this nation is going to be so blessed and that through the line, through the lineage, through the generation of Abram and the nation of Israel, what they're going to be known uh, down the road a little bit, God is go they're going to be the receptacle of a Messiah, a Savior, someone, a, a man who is going to come and rescue them from their brokenness and restore the relationship between them and God. 
So that's Genesis 12, the call of Abram. And so we're going to fast forward just a little bit to Genesis 15, because this is my God sighting from Scripture. So um, this is all about me this morning and, and how God spoke to me as I was reading through uh, Genesis 1 through 24. I got to Genesis 15. I'm like, ooh, that's really good. I need to be reminded of that regularly. So here we go, Genesis 15, uh, beginning with verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision and said, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your great, very great reward. The first question we have to ask is, you know, why does God start? Uh, why does this message start? Do not be afraid. I mean, normally when you approach someone or you come up to them or you see them, you don't say to them, don't be afraid. I mean, if you came into worship this morning and the greeters greeted you at the door, welcome to Faith Lutheran Church, don't be afraid. That'd be kind of weird, Right. And the only reason why God comes to Abram and says, hey, don't be afraid, is because Abram was afraid. He was afraid to be in the presence of God, as all ancients were. And this, it's interesting, uh, I think, that this is the very first time in Scripture... Remember, Genesis is a book of origins. It's a book of beginnings. It's a, a, a book, a, a story about these, this, these are the first things that happen. This is the first time these words show up in Scripture. Fear not. Don't be afraid. And over and over and over as we go through the Bible, as we go through Scripture, we're going to hear these words time and time again. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Because the people were afraid. Now, maybe you've heard a, a, a preacher or a Bible study leader or somebody say the words of fear not or do not be afraid show up in Scripture 365 or 366 times. Anybody heard that before? That's false. Um, uh, what that, those words, do not fear, show up about 70 times throughout Scripture. And some clever preacher thought it would be really great to, you know, communicate to all of us that we need to hear fear not 366 times uh, throughout the year, which at, at some level, which makes for great preaching, right? It's just not true. It shows up about 70 times, but the idea of do not be afraid or fear not. So sometime in scripture, it'll say, don't be anxious for anything. So when they're talking about those 366, they're including the don't be anxious scripture texts as well, which, you know, fair point. They're just using a little bit of, uh, I don't know, preacher creativity, preacher. I don't do that. You guys know that. Uh, I always stick strictly with the book and uh, I don't, uh, you know, add on those little extra things. Anyways, all that to say, it is a major theme throughout Scripture, and this idea of fear not comes up over and over and over. And I think it's because God's people, you and I, we oftentimes fall into this place of fear in our lives. And the thing about fear is it can be very paralyzing in our lives. Fear is an emotion and oftentimes when we fear something, we can kind of lose our brain cells, right? We become really illogical. We, be, we lose our ability to reason with things. And we just live in this emotional state of fear. And it can paralyze us to move forward. And I was looking this week as I was preparing the message a little bit that there are over uh, 500 different phobias. And a phobia, of course, is an irrational fear. It's one of those things that, I mean... 
We need fear in our lives for sure to stay alive, right? So hear me, fear is not a bad thing, but when fear overtakes us, when it overwhelms us, when it paralyzes us, it can become a very bad thing. And there's about 500 phobias, irrational fears um, that people uh, struggle with. And I could pass around the microphone this morning and each one of us could share what our phobias is. And one of my fears um, is snakes. I don't like snakes. I will see a little garter snake or something like that and I am running the other ways. And my kids can tell you many, many stories of my fear of snakes. So about 15 years ago, our family was uh, in Miami, um, and we went over to the Florida, Florida Everglades and, you know, did one of those airboat tours, and the, the kids were like, hey, there's a, a reptile show, you know, where we can, uh, you know, they wrestle with alligators and kind of do all that stuff, and, you know, we're having a good time, and uh, we're sitting up in the crowd, and uh, the guy pulls out this giant anaconda. It wasn't an anaconda. I thought it was an anaconda, but I wanted to go racing out of there. And he said, can I get a volunteer? And my boys point to me in a very obnoxious way. And so what do you do when everybody's looking at you? So I went up there and I stood up there and this guy puts this, I don't know what that, what kind of snake is that? a boa constrictor of some sort. I don't know. It's, it's not going to bite me. But I kid you not, I remember that day like it was just like 15 seconds ago. And I just stood there. I was terrified out of my mind. I mean, you can see it in my hands. I didn't move. I thought that thing was going to bite me, squeeze me. I, I just, it was the most creepy, gross, disgusting thing ever. And I was terrified. And I was frozen. I was absolutely paralyzed. And, and I just looked up. I didn't even look at my family. I just looked up and I'm just like, help. This is just, it, it was just awful. It was an irrational fear. That snake was never going to do anything to me, right? But in that moment, I was so overwhelmed uh, by the fear of that snake. And I think we all have those irrational fears uh, as it relates to uh, going through life, just life's journey. Beyond animals, bugs, mice, you know, all those things. It's those things that come into our lives and we're afraid. And I want to just, you know, pause here parenthetically for just a moment. And uh, sometimes people will, you know, tell, confess to me, share with me that they're struggling with doubt. And what I say to them is doubt is a good thing. Doubt is not the opposite of fear. In fact, doubt, uh, doubt is not the opposite of faith. Doubt and faith go hand in hand. As we go through life, as we read scripture, which it's, I think it's healthy to have a sense of doubt in, in the midst of not understanding things. So if you're struggling with doubt, I just want to encourage you, doubt and faith go hand in hand. The opposite, I think, of faith is fear. And fear is that thing that paralyzes us, again, that just sets us back on our feet so much that we can't move, we can't step forward. Because when we have doubt and we've got faith, we can keep moving forward. But what fear does is it stops us in our tracks. And so that's where Abram is. He's, the story begins with this fear. Uh, verse 2, But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who... Uh, the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, 
but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. So the story of Abram and Sarai begins where there is no heir, that they are an elderly couple. They're getting up there in years, about 75 years old, when uh, God calls Abram and Sarai to leave their land, uh, to go to the land of Canaan, the promised land as we know it. And God says, hey, I got a plan for you. And now about 10-ish years have passed. So now Abram is about 85 years old and he's having this conversation with God about what's going on. He's like, God, I still don't have any kids. You promised me that I would be the father of a great nation and it still has not come to pass. And so I guess my estate is just going to Eliezer of Damascus and God says, no, you are actually going to have an heir. So it begins with panic. Abram is in a a state of panic, and God offers a promise. It's going to be good. And then Abram's perplexed. He's like, wait a second, God, I'm confused. How can this be? I'm now 85 years old. My wife is old. We're past childbearing years, right? And then God offers another promise, or he, he expounds on the promise, and he explains a little bit. God took Abram outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then God said to Abram, so shall your offspring be. I love how God just invites Abram to just step outside of the tent. He doesn't have to go very far. He doesn't have to go on any long journey. He just needs a little change of perspective. And God says, look up, look up at the sky. And if you've ever been out uh, in somewhere far away from the city, far away from the the pollution of of lights and and all that, and looked up at the sky and looked at the stars, and and maybe you've looked up at the sky when there's just a crescent moon. So not even the, the moon is shining bright, but the sky is just brilliant and the lights are pulsating from the stars. And God says, that, that's how numerous your descendants are going to be. And I can imagine as Abram is looking up at the Milky Way, he's just like, man, that is overwhelming. That is overpowering. And keep in mind, he can only see the, the Milky Way, just one galaxy among billions and billions of galaxies out there. It's overwhelming. When we go into God's nature sometime, we look up and we just consider what God is up to. And this is what God is doing with Abram, just inviting him to see how vast, how big he is. And of course, we read back in Genesis 1, God is the one who threw the stars up in the sky. He put all those up there. And then God uses that as an image to speak to Abram and say, that's what your kids, how many kids you're going to have. Now, the Milky Way is big. The Milky Way is really big. In fact, it's about 10,000 light years uh, from one end to the other by 100,000 light years. And you're like, yeah, that's big. I don't really get it, right? Uh, Me neither. And I've, I've been trying to get my head around this all week long. And I remember the Albert Einstein uh, quote where uh, Einstein said, if you can't explain it, you don't really understand it, right? If you can't explain it. And so I just, I kept telling myself that. And I'm like, 
I still don't get it. I still don't understand it. And so I wrote it down. So I'm just going to read this to you because clearly I don't understand it well enough to speak to you, explain it to you. So light, uh, many of you science people know, travels at 186,000 miles a second, right? That's the speed of light. So if you could travel the speed of light, you could travel around the earth seven times in one second. That, that, that's how fast light goes, right? You could go to the moon in one and a half seconds. Boom, if you could travel the speed of light. Uh, you could go to Venus in two minutes and 18 seconds. You could travel to the sun if you at the speed of light in seven minutes. Which means if you want to travel from one end of the Milky Way to the other end of the Milky Way, traveling at 186,000 miles a second, it's going to take you over 100,000 years. That's how big the Milky Way is. And Abram is just looking at one galaxy. And there's billions and billions of galaxies. Any, are any of your heads exploding? My head has just been exploding all week long. And I love that God gives Abram this vision, this idea of this is how big I am. In fact, later on, we're going to read uh, in, the, uh, in, in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah. He's going to talk about, you know, how even though God made the universe, how small the universe is for God. And so we look up at the scars, we look up at the sky, we look up at the Milky, and we're like, wow, that is so big. And God's like, yeah, it's, it's only about this big to me. It's just, it's just about the size of my hand from one end of the Milky Way to the other. This is how Isaiah describes the universe and God's creation. And I love that imagery. I love that metaphor because it reminds me that however big my problems feel, anybody else feel like you've got some big problems in your life? I mean, it's just like, oh, God, these are my problems. God's like, yeah, it's about, about that big. I can handle it. And I think this is one of the reasons why we need to read Scripture over and over and over is that because it reminds us how big God is in the grand scheme of things. And so God says, oh, I got plans for you. So I don't know what winter looks like for you the next few months. I want to invite you. I want to encourage you. When you're feeling like, you know, you're, this is, this is the, the one issue you're dealing with or, or the couple issues you're dealing with, whether it's a health issue, a job issue, a relationship issue, just drive out into the countryside. Drive out past the cornfields. Get away from the, 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 the visual pollution of Bloomington Normal and find the most remote place you can and just look up at the sky. And be reminded like Abram was, this is how big God is. And he can handle whatever problems you might have. I'm not a night person, so I don't do that. Uh, usually I'm in bed about 8 o'clock-ish. Um, I like to experience God's presence out in the world in nature, going for a walk in the woods. And it's kind of the same thing for me. A couple weeks ago, my son and I were hiking uh, in the woods, and you know, this is just totally fills me up to be able to look out over the mountains. That's not me, by the way, with the shirt off and, and all that good stuff. That's my son. 
And for me, we were at a, a kind of at a lookout point, a, a bit of a tree clearing, and uh, it was the, the it was early in the morning, and there's mist, and uh, and we're just kind of looking out, and it's just like, ah, God is so good. He's so big. He's so vast. If he can create that and take care of that, he can take care of my stuff too. So I want to encourage you to make regular rhythms of just being in God's nature, being in God's creation, and allow God to speak to you as well. Verse 6. Abram believed the Lord, and God credited it to him as righteousness. If you've got your Bibles, uh, I want to encourage you to underline that verse. Circle that verse. You maybe even want to memorize that verse because it is such an important uh, verse to, 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 to pay attention to because it's going to come up over and over throughout Scripture. Abram believed the Lord and God created, uh, credited it to him as righteousness. And this idea of Abram believed, the Hebrew word for Abram believed or he believed is amen. And we, of course, know this is amen. This is where we get this idea of amen. And so God says, I've got a promise. I'm going to use you. I'm going to use your people. I'm going to give you an heir. And uh, Abram's response is amen. I believe it. Bring it on, God. I think you can do this. That's his response, literally. God makes a promise. Abram believes, and it is counted to him as righteousness. Think about that. In that moment, Abram is given, granted the righteousness of God. He is invited back into a restorative relationship with God. Now, I know many of you have been reading through uh, the book of Genesis, and you've been reading through Abram's life, uh, later becomes known as Abraham. And you're thinking, wait a second. Abraham was a pretty jacked up guy, right? I mean, he was, he's not the poster child for living a morally righteous life. He did some pretty horrible things. I mean, remember the time where, uh, and you probably read about this already, where Abraham got into a situation, he was fearful, he's got his wife Sarai with him, and, uh, and what does he do? He gives her away and says, oh, she's not my wife, she's my sister. I mean, what a horrible dude, what a jerk, right? And he doesn't just do that once, he does it twice. He denies his wife to save, to save his own skin. And then remember the other time where there's Abraham negotiating with God. Hey, God, if there's just 20 righteous people in this city, will you not destroy the city? How about 15? How about 10? I mean, who has the, the arrogance to come before God and say, God, let's negotiate you and me? Abram. I mean, he was an arrogant guy. He was a jerk for a husband, an arrogant guy. And then... And then he doesn't even trust God with his promise. God says, I'm going to give you an heir. I'm going to give you a child. And he waits and waits and waits. He's impatient. He's like, mm, God forgot about me. God forgot about us. I know. How about I just sleep with a concubine and that'll be an heir for my, you know, uh, for my nation. Are you kidding me? This is Abraham, the father of our faith. 
And yet we just read that God declared him righteous. What a sinner. But I think we need to be reminded over and over and over, this is who God is. God says, I'm going to give you a promise. And Abraham says, amen. I believe it. And it says, it was counted to him as righteous. And this, I think, is very perplexing for us as Jesus followers, isn't it? We see the sin and brokenness in all sorts of people in Scripture. We see the sin in our own lives, and we're like, ah, what a jerk I am. And yet, when we say, God, I believe, when we say amen to the promises of God, he promises to make us righteous. And we're going to see this time and time again throughout the Old Testament, this, this pattern of God declaring someone righteous when they have faith. And then we're going to pick it up again in the New Testament. We're going to see this over and over. In fact, what's really interesting, I think, and we haven't even gotten to the worst part of Abraham yet. I mean, it, it's just going to continue to get, he doesn't all of a sudden become morally upright and, you know, sinless and all that good stuff. He continues to be a jerk. He continues to be faithless. He continues to uh, all sorts of horrible things. In fact, there's nobody in scripture other than Jesus, who is a hero. They are all horrible, sinful, broken people. And that is certainly the case with Abram. But we're going to get to the New Testament uh, after some months, and we're going to look at people like James. We're going to look at the Apostle Paul, who are going to lift up Abraham, Abram, Abraham, as, a, as, a, as a, an illustration of righteousness. James 2 is going to talk about Abraham as one who is righteous. Paul's going to write in Galatians 3 and in Romans 4. We're going to hear about this idea of uh, Abram or Abraham, who will, he'll later be known as someone who is righteous. Time and time again. And I, just, I don't want you to forget that he was not a righteous, morally righteous person. He was a jerk. He was sinful. He had lots and lots of brokenness in his life. But he was a guy who said, Amen, I believe the promises. And it was counted to him as righteousness. This is where we get the idea of justification by faith. This theological doctrine that we are not made in a, put in a right relationship with God through our works, through our behavior, through our rituals, through coming to church. I'm glad you're all here today, but you get no righteous points for being here today. It doesn't work that way. I'm glad you're here. It's awesome. But keep in mind, at this point in time, the law has not even been given yet to the people of God, to, to Moses the prophets and the Israelites. So there's no law that they can follow even. There's no Ten Commandments at this point in time. There's no remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy yet. It hasn't shown up yet, and yet he's declared righteous. There's no circumcision that's going to come. There's no baptism. Those are all religious things that we do, but those things do not make us righteous. What we learn when the story of Abram is, I believe, amen, and God says, mm, because you've believed, I declare you as righteous. Fast forward 2,000 years. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Rome. And the question is, how was Abraham made right? And this is what Paul writes 2,000 years after this story. Uh, Romans 4, 
Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have something to boast about. But that was not God's way. For scripture tells us Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. What do most people believe about being righteous, being rescued, being saved in the presence of God? Well, it's kind of what most people believe. It's kind of like uh, you take a big pot or a big bowl of milk and you put a frog in it, right? And you and I are the frog. And what does the frog do in a, in a bowl or a, 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 a pot of milk? Because they just start paddling, right? And they paddle and paddle and paddle and they're trying to get their way out, right? And what they really do is they're churning that milk and pretty soon that milk turns into butter and it solidifies. Then they hop up on that butter, on that solid butter, and then they jump out. That's what most people think of when they think of justification. It's up to me. It's up to my work. It's up to what I do. And the apostle Paul says, no. That's not how it worked for Abraham. And that's not how it works for us either. And it's important for us to understand uh, how this worked. Righteousness, justification, rescue, salvation comes uh, to Abram. Because when we understand how it works for Abraham, that's how it works for us too. And so it's that same promise that Paul writes about in, in, in the letter of Ephesians He's writing to the church in Ephesus to explain this. Time and time again, Paul writes, For it is by grace that you have been saved, not through faith. Or through faith. I'll say it again. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. No one can boast. I mean, what, how boring would heaven be if when we get to heaven, everybody up there is just boasting about how they got to heaven, right? Well, once I was, you know, like this, and then I worked really hard, and then all of a sudden I got to, and then I did it, and then this circumstance happened, and then this is what I did. I mean, can you imagine for millions and billions of years listening to someone boast, blah, 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 blah. I mean, it's, if you've ever listened to someone boast here on earth, it's pretty painful, right? Just imagine in heaven how awful, how horrible it would be to listen to all the, 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 the righteous people boasting about what they did. There's not going to be any boasting in heaven. What's going to happen in heaven is we're going to walk up to one another. Hey, you're here too, huh? Yep. How'd you make it here? By grace through faith. It's what Jesus did. It's not about what I, I'm, I'm here by God's grace. That's the only reason why I'm here. Me too. Me too. That's going to be all of our testimony when we get to heaven. It's not about what we do or did. It's about what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Five wounds. Amen. I believe it. I believe what Jesus did on the cross counted for me. Amen. And if that's your testimony, then you are counted as among the righteous, among those who have been saved, among those who have had your relationship with God restored. This is why 500 years ago when Martin Luther was wrestling with the texts and with the church, 
came up with this idea of sola fide, by faith alone. We receive grace alone from God. This is how we are saved, and we accept it by faith alone. No works. We just receive it. I think this is why we call this the good news. Because on the one hand, it's so easy, isn't it? I mean, if you haven't heard this before, you're probably thinking to yourself, that sounds too easy, right? It is. It's just, amen, I believe it. It's too easy. No, we want to paddle like frogs in the milk. We want to have a little part of it. Maybe we just want to have a little bit of butter so we can get higher up. And God says, no. By grace alone, that's how the relationship is restored. You know, there's really two systems of world religions, if you will, two belief systems. I'll even say two buckets. There's the, the, the world religions of human achievement. I do, I work, I practice, I pray, I read, I, I do meditation, you know, all those things that, that people do to restore the relationship with God. The other bucket is simply divine achievement. It's what he's done. It's what he has done for me. Jesus did it all at the cross. There's no human achievement. It's all divine achievement. So I just want to close with the question. The Apostle Paul and God asks of Abram, do you believe? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, for this man, Abram, who you said you would make a nation that would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And God, we can hardly get our heads around what that means. I know I can't. But God, that was your promise to Abram and Sarai. And here we are, 4,000-ish years later. And there's a couple billion believers on the planet. The evidence that, God, you always fulfill your promises. But God, like Abram, we live in a time where we're impatient. It's hard to believe. And there's much to be afraid of, lots of fear. And so, God... Help us like Abram and so many others throughout history to declare, I believe. Amen. And not that, God, we have it all figured out, but that, God, this is a journey that you invite us on to walk with you. That we can live not as simply broken people, that we can live as righteous people. Not by anything that we have done, Lord, but because of what you have done on the cross for us. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.